John chapter 6, verses 22 through 34, uh, this evening, this is God's holy word, starting in verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the God the Father has set his seal. And they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave, him, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Uh, Thus far, the reading from God's holy and inspired word. Brothers and sisters, uh, there is a saying that I sometimes use with people. I don't think it originates with me. Uh, just like basically anything that I say doesn't originate with, uh, with me, uh, I'll say something uh, to this effect. Don't wait uh, until, to, to find out. Don't wait to find out that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Don't wait to find out that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. I'll say that to people when I'm uh, counseling them particularly. And if I ever say this to you, brothers and sisters, it'll be because you'll be somewhere in the process of selling out your confession to something that the world promises you. You'll be selling out Christ for something uh, that, uh, that the world promises you, but you know very well that the world cannot deliver on. It's because that you'll be at some point in, in the process of buying into a worldly idea of some sort or a way of life that surely others have taken. Others have, uh, have taken this, uh, th- this, this path of life. Uh, others have traveled upon this and realized that at some point that Jesus is simply not compatible with this way of life. But nevertheless, if I ever say this to you, you're going to be trying to put Christ in concert with the world at whatever point that you're trying to do this. And I'm going to say this to you because in the end, you're going to lose both Christ and the world. There is no alternative option. There is no other way that this is going to shake out. We see examples of this every now and then uh, when Christians become heralds uh, for the LGBTQ plus agenda. Uh, or when Christians uh, embrace wokeism with uh, virtually everything that uh, has to follow it in its wake. And on the other side, uh, we see examples of this when Christians take a uh, kind of nationalistic, pro-America, no-matter-what stance, 
and they downplay the sins of fallen men operating in fallen systems. And what happens all the way at the end is that they are going to have to be forced to choose Jesus or this agenda. And what happens just about 100% of the time, at least for those whom I have come in contact with who embraced both of those agendas, they lose both Christ and that agenda. They'll lose both Jesus and that agenda. Uh, To some degree, we can see glimpses of the crowd in the process of doing this exact same thing here. Uh, The crowd here functions uh, to bear a lot of the weight of the passage uh, this evening because they think that Jesus, uh, they think of Jesus in ways that are out of accord with what's really revealed about Jesus and his promises. And this prompts uh, the crowd uh, to say certain things, and this prompts Jesus to give this discourse here. Uh, If you have a red-letter edition in your Bible, you'll notice that um, compared to other places in the Gospel of John, there's a lot of red letters there. Um, That's because there are seven discourses in the Gospel of John, and this is uh, the fourth one, just as there are seven uh, major signs in what's called the Book of Signs in the Gospel of John. Uh, This one, as I said a moment ago, is the fourth of the seven discourses, and it orbits uh, around the crowd wanting Jesus plus whatever it is that they want of him. They want Jesus and whatever they want him to be, and in the end, they'll lose both of them. And so this being a rather large passage having to do Uh, with the day after that they uh, ate the bread and the fish, uh, we'll be breaking this up into a number of sermons on Jesus as the bread of life. So we'll be guided uh, by our theme statement that's given in your bulletin. Jesus sustains us in how uh, we need to be sustained, not merely in how we want to be sustained. And now for that second uh, change to be made, which you will doubtless forgive me of, Uh, We'll keep the first two points, but we're going to change the versification a little bit. You'll catch it along the way. But uh, let's see, point three will be the crowd wants to see. The crowd wants to see. So we have the theme statement. And the first point is the crowd wants to search. This is verses 20 through 25. The crowd wants to work. Verses 26 through 29 And 30 through 34, the crowd wants to see. So to think of our first thought this uh, this evening, we come to verse 22. Verse 22, and there's a couple of things going on here. Firstly, it makes us uh, shift the gears back a little bit uh, to to, to repeat something to us. And in in doing so, in doing this, it tells us something of the mindset of the crowd here. It's kind of difficult to follow, uh, but here it is. Verse 22, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Uh, Now, to just briefly refresh our memory here, the miracle of the loaves and fish uh, happened just the day before. And sometime within the setting of that miracle of the loaves and the fish being multiplied, uh, on that day, the crowd had noticed that Jesus uh, and his disciples had, 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 had come across the sea on only one boat. That's how they got to the place where, where they're at. But now, the day after, uh, that one boat is, is gone. So now, verse 23, other boats from Tiberias came 
near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Maybe these boats arrived there, uh, I, I don't know, to, uh, to, to see Jesus and his signs. Maybe they want to, to see Jesus healing people because they heard that he was there. Or maybe the, the, the boats were there being blown uh, from the storm the, the night before or some other reason. Uh, but just in a, as an aside, verse 23, take a look at the wording there. Uh, notice the wording says that they came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Uh, notice what it says and what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that they had eaten the bread after Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fish, right? Uh, the wording here, this passage has already positioned us, in other words, to place a value on something rather than something else. The, the, the passage has already positioned us very subtly to put value on the fact that Jesus had given thanks for the bread over against the miracle of him, him actually multiplying the loaves and the fishes themselves. In other words, this is a very subtle way that the passage gears us up for exactly what Jesus is going to say, that the flesh is of no help at all. Uh, later on, verse 63 that, 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 that he is the bread from heaven, and they shouldn't be looking to Jesus merely for what he can offer. They shouldn't be looking to Jesus merely for the externals, the, benefit, the, the outward benefits of what he can offer. Rather, this passage now puts uh, weight upon him giving thanks for what they can't see. Uh, that they shouldn't be focused on Jesus merely for what they, they want, they should be embracing him for who he actually is in all thankfulness and true humility. We're already primed, in other, in other words, for what's to follow. In verse 24, So when the, when the crowd saw that Jesus wasn't there nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Uh, this verse repeats to us the crowd's curiosity and eventually their search. Again, they'd been there the previous day. Uh, they had eaten the bread. They'd eaten the fish, and after that, they tried to force Jesus to be king. The last thing that they saw of Jesus was that he withdrew to a mountain, and then a couple of few hours or so later, they saw his disciples went down to the lake into a boat, and they, uh, they, they headed across the sea. That's the last that they saw of Jesus or his disciples. Jesus is up there, they're, they're thinking, and the disciples are, are, are across there. In their mind, in the crowd's mind, Jesus is most likely still on the mountain somewhere, or maybe he's lodged in a house somewhere uh, nearby. We don't know. But according to the crowd, there was only one boat there the day before, and so Jesus still had to be around there, right? He's still uh, up on the mountain, or maybe he's in a house or something like, like that. This tells us that the crowd is as curious about Jesus' whereabouts as they were ignorant of the miracle of Jesus walking on water. And so they go to Capernaum, which uh, Matthew chapter 4 says is Jesus' hometown in that region. And when they finally find him at Capernaum, uh, verse 25, on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And if you think about it, this question really gets at the heart of what they assume him to be. It tells us what we need to know about the crowd's mindset. Uh, and really, if you think of it uh, in the fullness of the passage, uh, their duplicity. So the last time they saw him, uh, they wanted to call him king, uh, but only in the way that they wanted him to be king. Uh, this time, they patronized him by calling him rabbi. Now, we know uh, from the rest of the passage, we're going to find out 
they have really no intention on learning from him as the rabbi in the first place, and they don't want him to be the rabbi that he actually is. So this tells us something about the crowd's search, the crowd desiring to search for him. Knowing the passage as we do, and knowing the passage as as we will, we can say this for sure, they're not really searching for Jesus. Uh, They're searching for him to fit the mold of what they think Jesus ought to be. But they're really not searching for the true Jesus. They're searching for him for all the wrong reasons. And Jesus is going to speak of this and of the many times in which the people, even nowadays, will search for Jesus. They'll want him to be something else other than what he truly is. And so this is why he says in the passage later on, all that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. Fallen man, in other words, uh, can craft uh, their own messiahs and they, uh, they, they can worship that false messiah instead of the one that the Father has given to them. And fallen man has and fallen man does still craft their own messiahs. And even uh, some of them, even still to this very day, put those false messiahs under the name Jesus Christ. Uh, Their search for them is for all the wrong reasons, which Jesus is privy to in our next thought, and the crowd wants to work. This is verses 26 through 29. The crowd wants to work. And going on to the next point of the crowd wanting to work, we come to verse 26. Uh, They ask Jesus, when did you get here? Uh, What does Jesus do? He entirely avoids their question. Well, maybe not entirely, but about 90% avoids their question which is almost entirely. He entirely avoids their their question and even criticizes them for their search. Verse 26, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, note the emphasis, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Almost every commentator that I've consulted on this rips the crowd to shreds over this, essentially saying that Jesus cuts directly into the heart of their desires for even searching for Jesus, for even asking that very question. They only search for Jesus to fill their bellies. They don't search for Jesus for the miracle itself, and they certainly don't search for Jesus for what the miracle pointed to. They search for Jesus to fill their bellies. Jesus knows that they're searching for him because they assume that he's of great earthly value to them. He's worth a lot to them. He, he, he's, he's to their outward advantage uh, greatly. Not for what the miracle itself points to. And we know what this miracle points to, don't we? We know what this points to. It points back to Jesus. It points back to himself. If you uh, remember the last sermon of Jesus multiplying the loaves and the fish, uh, we've looked at the fact that Jesus doing that very sign, multiplying the loaves and the fish, is a microcosm of everything that Jesus ever does. You can re-listen to that sermon at your own leisure. But that miracle itself is a microcosm of everything that Jesus ever does, both in his earthly ministry and his heavenly ministry. And so Jesus is rebuking them, not, not for them just simply not getting it. He's rebuking them for actively ignoring the significance of that miracle as though it were something merely and entirely external and had no deeper meaning. Uh, to do this is incredibly dangerous to your faith. Uh, to look at a miracle and, 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 and say, how can I benefit from this? 
As though Jesus is merely and only an external uh, person giving an external blessing and no deeper meaning than, than that is incredibly dangerous to your faith in Jesus as the Christ. And so he warns them of this inherent danger in the very next verse. He says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. In in other words, he's looking at the crowd and he's saying, crowd, what y'all are doing is hazardous. What y'all are doing is dangerous. What y'all are doing is you're propping up a Messiah of your own making, one that only fills your bellies or benefits the outward person when the Father has specifically designated his own true Messiah, the Father has set his seal upon this one. And without him, you will perish, just as you would if you had no food. Without him, you will die. So work for the food that endures to eternal life, which, of course, we know the crowd still misunderstands. This is why they ask in verse 28, what must we do to be doing the works of God? The sense here is that they know that there's some sort of kinds of work that God wants them to do. In other words, the crowd essentially looks at Jesus and says, okay, if you, Jesus, tell us to do do the work for the food that endures to eternal life, then just tell us what stuff God wants us to do and we're going to do them. That's the sense in which you should read that, uh, that passage. Just tell us what God wants us to do. Tell us the stuff that God wants us to do, and we're going to do them. Okay? They assume that in order to be on God's good side, no matter how they, they, they assume that to be, he has given a, to, uh, to, to mankind a list of do's and don'ts. He's given to mankind a list to follow and that they need to do. This is why the word works is in the plural. You notice the word works is in the plural. To this, Jesus responds... This is the work, note the singular, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Jesus is doing a couple of things here. Number one, he's correcting their theology, and number two, he's telling them of their position. Number one, he's correcting their theology. He's saying, crowd, y'all have a gospel of works. You have a gospel of works and not a biblical gospel of grace in which a person is granted entrance in the kingdom of God, and we can even say, granted to have a right understanding of the miracles, uh, let's say. You guys have a gospel of works when the gospel from, from the Bible is all of grace, grace alone, from first to last. So he's correcting their theology. He's also telling them of their position. He's also saying that they haven't even achieved the first level of entrance into this kingdom. They haven't even achieved the first level of entrance into the kingdom of God, which is to believe. That's the primary responsibility of God's covenant, to believe, to trust in the work of Christ, to believe. And even this belief, even this, uh, this, this responsibility is something of a work of God himself. It's granted only by God himself so that even our faith is something that is given to us by God's power. It's the work of God that they believe and they haven't even done this work. This work hasn't even been done upon them because they think that they need to work at it themselves to get it. This is what Jesus is telling them. It forces us to think nowadays about how to carry uh, the work of Christ to others. 
there's a struggle that the Reformed have in living lives that look a lot more like duty than delight. Uh, stereotypically, uh, in the OPC, uh, we don't know what to do with a sinful life that's really messy. We don't really have a category for acting, interacting with a really, really, really messy sinful life because we're prone to think that everything needs to be done, of course, decently and in good order. Right? So we don't know what to do when sin just totally up, uh, up, turn, turns upside down an entire life and someone lives in filth. Uh, there are certain sins, let's call them, that are not done decently. Uh, there are certain sins that are not done in good order, and, uh, and we sometimes don't know what to do with this. I would say, in other words, that for the majority of us, our problem is in making sure that we keep up appearances and look good to others no matter what's really going on. Uh, for the majority of us, we focus on doing the works that God wants us to do, so that we can feign to others that we're better than we really are. And we need to be convinced that living out the gospel of grace should plainly display to others that it's the work of God that we believe. It should very clearly shout to them that we're living out a gospel of grace. And more than that, in line with what we're going to be coming across in the chapter, it's not only God who brings us to this grace, it's God who keeps us in his grace. Uh, we need to be adept at living that, uh, that out, uh, that we need to apply to our personal lives that, yeah, Galatians 2.20 still holds out uh, for myself personally, that we live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, and that he's the reason. That's the reason why I believe in him. It has nothing to do with me. It was started by him, maintained by him, it's going to be finished by him. Uh, he's called the author and perfecter of our faith for that very reason. And this is how the believer, by the way, distinguishes themselves from the person in the crowd here. Uh, see, a believer, the believer, when the believer sins, and the believer can certainly sin greatly and, and, and fall into various uh, traps of the world, the flesh and the devil, when the, sin, when the believer sins, what do we do? We look to Christ. Uh, we look to Christ and we find in him an advocate who has done all the works of God, his very Father. He has done all the works that God has required us to do. The crowd here doesn't see that. Uh, the crowd here, when they look to, to their sin, what do they look at? Uh, they look at their own insufficiencies and somehow they think that they need to garner up the sufficiencies of themselves. And so they ask him, what works uh, should we be doing in order to gain eternal life? He looks to himself here. This, the crowd looks to themselves here to generate those works. And this brings us to our last point this evening. The crowd wanted to search for Jesus, uh, and what they found wasn't really what they're looking for. They wanted to work the works of God, and lastly, they want to see. They want to see. Verses 33, I'm sorry, verse 34 through 34. Uh, just in case you're not discerning a pattern here, uh, the crowd is going to misuse and misunderstand their role of seeing just as they did uh, their, their, their prerogative in searching and working as well. So verse 30, So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Probably a quote from uh, Psalm 78 or Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 5. Uh, but this is the essence of their problems right, uh, right here. 
Uh, as Jesus and the Apostle Paul will say at their own times, the Jews demand a sign. The Jews demand a sign. They want to see that he can give them food, even though they were the recipients of that very sign just the day before. And so this question brings into view their confusion and also their disappointment that Jesus isn't doing what they want him to do. In effect, they're, they're, they're not putting Jesus, they're not only putting Jesus to the test and saying to him, hey, prove yourself, prove that you can do these things. They're not only doing that, what they're also doing is a comparison contrast game with the Old Testament, specifically with, with Moses. And essentially, they're, they're not only just saying prove yourself, but, just, but, but also prove to us, not only that you could do these, uh, these signs sort of like Moses did, but prove that you're better than Moses. Prove that you're better than Moses. He gave us manna to eat in the wilderness. Our fathers saw it rain down from heaven. What do you give us? You see the comparison contrast game going, going on there to which Jesus matches and corrects their usage of the Old Testament passage. Uh, look at verse 32. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. By the way, I don't have time to exp- expound on this. Look at the tenses of those verbs. It was not Moses who gave you the bread. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Firstly, he's correcting them and saying that Moses didn't give them anything. Moses didn't give you nothing. God did. His Father did. He's also using Moses in that entire administration, the entire Mosaic administration, to show them something that they should have seen all along. That if you remember the tabernacle, if you remember the tabernacle in the wilderness, it had in it the table of showbread, uh, the bread of God, is what it's known as. So too, the bread of God is the life of Jesus, showing the presence of God to the entire world. And just as the bread rained down from heaven upon the people of God to sustain them, so too Jesus is himself the sustaining power of the people of God. He comes down from heaven to give life to the world, to grant light to those who are in darkness so that people can be born again. Even though he's pointing to himself this entire time uh, with eyes of faith, we are able to perceive this. We are able to see what he's saying about himself and themselves. And even though the crowd wants to see, they can't seem to fix their eyes upon Jesus. And so they still assume that he's offering the never-ending loaf of bread. They still assume that he's offering to them something that is merely physical and that they can eat and fill their bellies on ad infinitum. Till the end of days, and very much like the Samaritan woman at the well, and I encourage you to do some comparison uh, games with uh, John 4 and John 6 uh, to look at uh, the Samaritan woman at the well and, uh, and, and the crowd here, very much like the Samaritan woman at the well who asked for water. Uh, she says, well, give me this water so that I don't have to come here uh, so, so often. They say to him in verse 34, sir, give us this bread Always, They still understand that Jesus is talking about uh, to, to, to refer to something else other than himself. And we're going to stop here. We'll come back to this uh, beautiful passage and we'll look at Jesus' famous response to them in the next 
few verses next time. But we've seen tonight at least part one of Jesus uh, as the bread of life. And that Jesus sustains us in how we need to be sustained, not merely how we want to be sustained. And I'll end with uh, the sermon with just one application that really we've been pushing for the entire sermon. Uh, brothers and sisters, uh, what this passage is telling us, and uh, from what we can gather uh, with the crowd, the crowd, again, bears a lot of the weight of the passage and is telling us for, in no uncertain terms, do not be like the crowd. Do not be like the crowd. Brothers and sisters, embrace and present the real Jesus and not an otherized version of him. Embrace and present to the world, firstly to the person in the mirror, the real Jesus and not some otherized version of him. When the crowd was searching for Jesus, they were looking for someone who previously they wanted to to be made their king. And then when they found Jesus, they assumed that he was just another rabbi uh, who taught some things that they didn't jive with, and we'll eventually see that they'll all leave uh, him because of it. Again, they'll lose both what they're looking for and Jesus. There's been many people who look for Jesus to be something that he's not. Calvin says in his commentary, uh, John Calvin, a famous reformer, uh, says in his commentary on this passage that people would gladly embrace the gospel if only it were free from the bitterness of the cross. And if it brought nothing but worldly pleasures. He goes on to say that if Jesus had just complied with their wishes and given them an expectation of worldly happiness, then he would have been applauded by the crowds. They would have given him, they would have hailed him as the prophet, as the Messiah, as the Son of God. But he had to go and point to himself, and he had to go and point to his own sufficiency, and only when they were called to deny the flesh and to bear their cross do they renounce Christ. And even nowadays, by the way, that's in the 1500s, nowadays you still see people peddling an otherized version of Jesus, uh, saying that he is something other than he truly is. Uh, They'll treat Jesus as the nationalist Republican uh, who wants you to be pro-America no matter what, to stand for the flag, to kneel for the cross, uh, to vote this way because uh, they uphold traditional values and that's the way that Jesus is going to win the culture war, by electing our leaders. Still, there's others who will say that Jesus is the globalist liberal who wants you to be high-minded He wants you to be genteel, sophisticated. Uh, He wants you to be delicate. He wants you to be uh, non-judgmental, compliant with the LGBTQ plus agenda because of love, because of acceptance, of tolerance, forgiveness. Uh, He wants you to be compliant with uh, all these ideals uh, because that is the way that you're not going to be judging people. You're going to be letting people be who they are. Uh, Still others nowadays will say that Jesus is a great teacher. He's a wise sage. He's a good example to follow. Someone might even say that Jesus is only the voice for the voiceless. Um, He is a champion of the poor. He is a champion of the downtrodden. Uh, That he's the one who's supposed to be there to catch you when you fall. Uh, these are popular renditions of Jesus. We assume him to be something. The problem with, with all this isn't that Jesus is none of these. 
It's that he's much more. He's much more than all of this, especially he isn't any one of those at the exclusion of any other. See, Jesus isn't who we think he is. Jesus is, is who he says he is. And what these signs say that he is, and what the Father says that he is, even as he has set his seal upon him, that he's God in the flesh. That's who Jesus is. He's come to reconcile us fully to his Father. He's come to build in us a kingdom that's founded upon his own grace and kindness. He's the king of the kingdom of God, and that his blood alone is sufficient to make you a citizen of that kingdom. Jesus is our only touching point between heaven and earth. He's the only one to make sense of this age and the only one to secure you for the age to come. Without him and his work, we're lost. And we're drifters in this universe until we die and then we will bear the weight of our own sins. And so we need to embrace that Jesus. We need to embrace that Jesus and we need to present that Jesus to people. We need to to be prepared for this. So in order to do this, we need to be people who are regularly with Jesus, who are regularly feasting at his table, who are regularly with him uh, in his worship. We're to be regularly with him in the word. We're to be regularly with him in prayer. We're to be regularly with him as we fellowship with other believers. We're to be regularly around his throne to get to know who he is so that on the day of testimony, we will embrace and give testimony to the real Jesus. Uh, Not how the person, even the person in the mirror, wants me to say what Jesus is. Not not, Not for how the person who I'm speaking to wants me to talk about Jesus. Not an otherized version of Jesus. We need to embrace Jesus, present him, present the real Jesus, and not an otherized version of him. Let's pray. Now, Father in heaven, we...